Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Perspectives. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. Today, we're going to talk about um, the right to die once you've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, it's a difficult topic, uh, but one recently uh, that has come up because the Netherlands recently passed a law making it legal for people diagnosed with dementia to plan their death. Well, joining me now, um, our next guest is um, she is uh, had has been diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's. She's now in her late fifties, um, but had a diagnosis a couple years back, and is um, really proactively um, taking part and um, advocating for the right to die um, and um, planning her own um, death. So, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, you know, this is a difficult topic um, for a lot of people, um, and you really felt the need um, to speak up about this topic. So tell us, before we go back into, you know, your Alzheimer's experience and how you were diagnosed, why is this issue so important to you right now? Uh, well, the reason it's important to me is because I um, saw what my mother went through. Uh, she was diagnosed at uh, 58 years old and she ended up passing away from Alzheimer's and her death was, um, I felt a very long and harrowing experience that I personally would not wanna go through. I didn't feel like it allowed her to really die with much dignity, even though she was in hospice. And so um, I've just decided that if there's a way that I could possibly do it in a um, dignified forum where I could go to another country or you know, ideally in the United States, um, at the point in my life where my quality of life has diminished, that I'd like the opportunity to do so. You uh, just received your diagnosis now. Is it two years ago? Is that correct? Uh, a year and a half. A year and a half ago. Um, and I take it you have a, fa a familial link uh, that since your mom had Alzheimer's. Yes, my mother had Alzheimer's and my uncle had dementia. I had another great uncle have dementia, my grandmother um, also. So it does run in our family. And then I have several great aunts and uncles also that had had it as well. So have you been genetically tested? Are you, are you an APOE4 carrier? Yes, I have two APOE4 genes. Okay, so did you think um, during the course of your life that you would, it was inevitable that you would get, I mean, with such a, a strong family history, um, did you before diagnosis think that there was, you know, that you would indeed um, end up with Alzheimer's? Yes. Um, well, you know, I was very, very close to my mom and my mom and I are almost like doppelgangers, you know, I'm exactly like her. And so when she was going through this and stuff and, um, you know, we both have quite a bit of medical problems as well. And so as we were going through it and stuff, I thought, you know what, there's a good chance I'm, I possibly am going to have it. So when I had the genetic testing done and I saw that I had the APOA4 gene, I decided to pursue it and uh, talk to my primary doctor about it. And they suggested that I go up to the um, Alzheimer's Institute at the University of South Florida, Tampa Bay Alzheimer's Institute and um, have further testing done. So you actually found out that you, did you get diagnosed before you actually had um, a lot of symptoms of Alzheimer's? Um, I guess it depends who you talk to. If you ask my husband and I, we think that I had been having symptoms. You know, people who don't, uh, aren't around me very much, they think that I'm, um, that I am pretty functional and I'm able to cope very well. Um, but people who are close to me, who spend a lot of time with me, have seen a deterioration. And so my husband and I had noticed a deterioration. 
And so um, that's what ca caused us concern. And, you know, at first I kept saying, well, you know, it's just because I'm getting older and I'm going through menopause and all those other stuff. So, it's, you know, it's one of those things. And my husband kept saying, you know, Kelly, I don't know. He goes, I, I think it might be something more than that. He goes, you know, you're usually right on top of your game. And it seems like sometimes you're struggling with some pretty basic things. And so we decided we'd go. And, you know, um, I think we were hoping for the, the best and, um, you know, that they would tell us that it wasn't, but they confirmed what we, what, you know, pretty much what I already knew. And, and did they con confirm because you, they saw plaque or what, how did you get a diagnosis? It, was it the cognitive testing? Um, they did extensive cognitive testing. Um, I cannot have an MRI because I have a pacemaker that's not MRI compatible. And so they did a CAT scan um, and the CAT scan showed that um, my brain on one side of my brain is deteriorating more than the other side of the brain. Um, and then the memory testing. And Kelly, at this time, you had a pretty serious job, right? You were working for Hewlett Packard. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing and, you know, did, um, did it impact your job at this point? No, um, it, I retired five years ago. And okay. at that time, um, I was working a lot of hours and um, uh, we traveled a lot in the, in the positions that we were in. And um, I had a pretty high level position in the company, a lot of responsibility and um, had to do a lot of multitasking, a lot of running of very large programs and projects. And um, I was able to perform that capacity. Now, if I were still in that capacity now, I don't think I'd be able to. And in fact, my husband and I talk about that all the time. It, things would be falling through the cracks. Um, but you know, uh, you know, at that point I was able to do so. Um, I decided to retire uh, because I was having some significant medical issues in addition to the memory loss. Um, because I have heart problem. And so um, I had talked to my doctor and my doctor said, you know what, if you keep going, working the number of hours you're working, you're probably not going to make it much longer. So you got to pick what's important to you. So I decided my health was important to me. And they always say what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So I imagine if you had a heart problem, it could accelerate cognitive um, decline. Yes. And plus I've had multiple concussions um, in my life. And so that was another factor that they thought probably contributed to it. So, you know, a lot of people are really uncomfortable talking about this topic. And I find, you know, when we um, uh, ask, when we have comments on stories we've done about the right to die, um, there's people who are either really for it or really against it. You don't, you don't really find that, mm, I'm not sure. It's really, I mean, I, you know, people, people have very strong feelings. Um, tell us a little bit about your feelings on the topic. I mean, it's a very... I think emotionally, it's a really hard topic for us to just talk about intellectually because um, this notion of saying, I want to die at a certain point is a scary thing for many people. So tell us a little bit about your thought process around planning your own death and why it's so important to you. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it is a very uncomfortable topic for people to talk about. Um, when I talk about it with my friends and my family and stuff like that, a lot of people kind of shy away from it. And they're like, oh, Kat, Kelly, you know, and some people just tell me, you know, I don't agree with it because of religious reasons. And, and I understand that. But for me, it's important because um, I have seen my mom and some of other some other people that I know um, go through it. Um, and for example, my mom lived in a, um, assisted living and I ended up moving in with her and lived there for a while with her. So I saw firsthand what it was like to live in a memory care unit. Um, I lived there full time for a while and I got to see what it was like. And it's not something that I want to go through. Um, I don't feel that the people there die with dignity. 
Um, and, um, not, you know, and it was a beautiful facility that she was at. It had nothing to do with facility. It's just, it's not, you know, it's not the way that I'd like to go. And so, um, you know, I've, I've looked at different options and, you know, I've, I'm kind of going down a dual path right now, if you will, where one of my paths, in fact, I just talked about it with my Alzheimer's doctor the other day during my appointment. One of my things that I'm looking at is looking at donating my brain to the Florida Brain Bank. And um, um, I'm going on Monday to start talking to the funeral home about how I would do that because I have to sign the paperwork while I'm healthy and all this other stuff. And I have to get all these testing done and things like that. Um, so I'm looking at that because there's a chance that I'm not going to be able to do this in a dignified fashion. And I'm not the type of person who's going to commit suicide. That's not something I believe in. I'd like to be able to do euthanasia where I go on my own terms and I do it when my quality of life has dim diminished. So if I'm not able to do that and I'm not able to make arrangements to do that, then I'll go down the other path. And so the other thing that I'm looking at is I've been in conversations with different um, assisted livings in the area to look at worst case scenario, that would be the worst case scenario for me would be to go into an assisted living. Um, I cannot imagine anything worse for me than to do that other than um, I know some people say, well, you know what, why don't you stay home with your husband and let your husband bring in caregivers? Um, to be honest with you, um, for me, that's not the appropriate decision for me because uh, when I went through it with my mom, even though my mom was in assisted living, I was there all the time with her and I almost felt like I was her caregiver and it puts so much stress on the caregiver. You know, they, they say that 40% of the caregivers die before the actual patient does because it's such a, you know, a, a load on those people. And I don't want to do that to my husband. And so I'm making a conscious decision that I, I'm either going to hopefully do euthanasia if I can find a place that will allow me to do that, or I'm going to um, do the assisted living. Um, but I'm really hoping I can do um, the euthanasia. Um, obviously, in the United States, there's no places available in the United States that will do it for people with cognitive disorders. Um, and so I'm not able to do it here. So what, so let's, let's, I mean, I, I, there's so many things to unpack there, but let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you're, you know, euthanasia is not, tell us what the difference, you said assisted living versus euthanasia. What's the difference between the two? Okay. So assisted living would be where um, once I've reached a point with my cognitive decline, that my husband would put me into a home that would be a memory care unit for people who have Alzheimer's or dementia or Parkinson's disease. And they would go and, and I would go and stay there. And then I would um, be there until the end of my life where they would put me in hospice then right. and bring in hospice so that I could pass away at the home. Um, and then euthanasia would be where um, I would make arrangements with um, potentially another country, like you said, the Netherlands right now, they do allow euthanasia and also Switzerland does it also, um, where you can do euthanasia and they do allow people with cognitive disorders, but Switzerland has much more stringent guidelines around it and they do not allow people with advanced level um, cognitive disorders to pass away. So, I mean, I guess you would have to plan all of this before it happens, right? So you have to give permission to have this happen in a different country um, be, while you are still at an earlier stage of this disease. Is that is that correct? Yes. Um, yeah, you know, some people call it assisted suicide. Euthanasia and assisted suicide are, are pretty much one and the same. They're synonymous. Um, 
for example, um, when I've talked to the people in Switzerland about doing it, um, for me to do that, I would have to be able to sign the paperwork now, have my doctor sign off on it and get a second opinion saying that, yes, they confirmed that I have the Alzheimer's diagnosis. We submit the paperwork to Switzerland and then um, they would have their doctors verify it. And then I would. So when I, I said to them, I said, well, when would I do it? Would I do it later on in, in life? Because right now I'm at the very beginnings of stage three of Alzheimer's and there's seven stages. So I personally feel like I have quite a bit of quality of life on the table, I'm hoping. Um, however, what they told me was, no, I have to be able to do it when I'm in Switzerland while I'm still totally cognitive. So that could mean within the next year or two, I would have to go over and potentially um, allow them to administer the medication to allow me to, to, okay. my and obviously that's not going to happen. Right. I mean, that's like, right. you're really early on. I mean, you could have right. another decade. That make sense. So, so now in, in the Netherlands, um, they just passed a new law saying that they will allow people with advanced dementia to, um, do assisted suicide or euthanasia as well. And so, um, there, what they're doing, is if you um, if you sign something now and you get your doctors to sign off on and things like that, then they will allow people to potentially do that with advanced with advanced dementia. Now, Deborah, as you probably know, um, a couple years back they had a problem in the Netherlands where someone like me um, did say that that's what they wanted to do, and then when the time came and her her situation got to the point where it was time for her to potentially have it done, her family said, you know what? Okay, now we want to do it. Well, when they went to administer the medication, she fought them and she didn't want to allow that. And the doctor did it anyway. And so it's been in review by the Netherlands courts and they just upheld the verdict and said, you know what? It was, it was a justified case that she had already signed off on when she's still perfectly capable. And so I would just like the opportunity to decide what I'd like to do. I, I uh, don't like the idea that I have to live with, I have to go into an assisted living or I have to be at home or what have you and just allow myself to diminish. So I guess what comes to mind and where people might have a problem um, is the fact that somebody else, when you're in a later stage of Alzheimer's, someone else has to make that judgment call that this is the time that you had designated. So what right. does that look like exactly? I mean, who is that person? Is that your husband? Um, yeah. And what specifically do you have to say to really have that happen? Because presumably when the time has come, it's going to be a time when you are in a later stage of neurodegeneration and you have, uh, you are really reliant on other people to care for you. So right. How do you how do you define that and how does that all work? And given that you're in the U.S. where it's not legal and you have to seek help in another country, so what does that all look like? Right. Um, you know, I've been working with some different um, um, psychologists and stuff on different things like that, and um, I think what it boils down to for for me would be, you know, I don't think anyone would want to allow me to do that or to assist me with it if they thought that I had good quality of life. So. I have to define what is a quality of life and what level of quality of life I'm willing to live with. And, you know, um, for example, one of the things that one of the doctors told me is, you know, Kelly, if you're still in a nursing home, for example, and you're showing 
um, or in, a, in this assisted living and you're showing that you're still enjoying things, you know, a dog runs into the room or, you know, a little child runs across the room and you're showing joy, you know, it's, it's going to be hard pressed for someone to be willing to let you do that. But, you know, I guess if I'm to the point where I'm, you know, um, not able to toilet on my own and I'm not really too able to identify people that come in the room and I don't know my loved ones except for maybe my, my husband, but I don't know anybody else. And if I am having a hard time eating and swallowing, then at that point, I'd like the opportunity to be able to make that decision and, and sign that paperwork way beforehand, you know, within the next year or two that says, when I reach this point, this is when I'd like the opportunity to be able to make this decision. And I would like my husband to be able to give the okay to administer the medication so I can do that. Um, we have a, a, a comment and a question um, coming in saying, well, what if you at the later stage cannot communicate a change of mind? Um, you know, what happens then? And that that's, I mean, if this were my partner and my husband, that would be what I would fear. It's like, well, what if you don't really mean it? And what if life isn't actually that bad in your, from your perspective? Um, you know, what if, I mean, that, that's the question right. that's really difficult to, to, uh, you know, make sense of. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And I think that's pretty much what happened with that lady in um, the Netherlands that, you know, she had signed all the paperwork. They had all the I's and T's dotted and crossed. And then later on in the, in the stage, uh, she, you know, she obviously when they were getting ready to administer the medication into her arm, uh, she started fighting it. Um, and so that is, that is a risk. Um, I just know that I'm the type of person, I'm a very decisive person. Um, when I make a decision, I go with it. And I'm the type of person where um, I can get a lot of things done in a period of time. And I, I'm, I'm very pragmatic. And so when I make my decision, I live with it. And, um, and my husband knows that as well. And so, you know, I keep telling them, you know, because we have a lot of, obviously, as you can imagine, a lot of heart to heart conversations about this, because that's a hard thing to discuss. Um, but when the time comes, I'm not going to blame him or hold it against him for making that decision when we've been talking about this for, you know, we've been talking about it for a year now that this is what I want to do. And, you know, next Monday, we're going to meet with a funeral home about, you know, if in fact I can't do that, how am I going to go about donating my brain and, and what's that going to look like and those types of things. So, you know, those are all hard things to do when you're 58 years old. I, I can imagine. Um it just doesn't feel right to kind of plan your death when you're living life. Right. I mean, it's, right. it's just like, it's, it's hard to make sense of. And, uh, but you know, I, I do, um, I'm, I'm hugely grateful for you for bringing up this topic. Cause I think it's one that's not discussed and it needs to be discussed. Um, you know, and by no means, um, are we advocating for this or anything, but it's an important perspective. And it's a, it's, it's one that you obviously feel very, um, passionate about, but I guess I want to ask, what does it mean to you to die with dignity? Like, have you like thought about how do you define what that's like dying with dignity? That's a good point. Um, you know, I've had, I, I know this is hard to believe, but I've had people tell me, um, even people who are in the, um, like police officers and people like that tell me, you know what, you could always do it by doing this. And they tell me how I can commit suicide and they give me suggestions of how I can do it and things like that. To me, that is not dying with dignity, you know, going and doing it somewhere in my house and doing it clandestine and not being able to say goodbye to my husband and leaving my husband with all that guilt and having him find the body and things like that. That is not 
to me a, a good way to go and it's not fair to my family members. Um, I would like my family members, including my children, to be in on this and to support me in the decision, which, you know, at this point, um, my family does support me on the decision. You know, they just say, if that's what you want to do. And, you know, fortunately for me, they um, were there when they saw my mom pass away and they were there seeing her um, slowly diminish over a period of years. And, you know, they, they understand why I'm saying the things that I do. So to me, that's the difference is not leaving the situation where all of a sudden my loved ones walk in and I've, you know, taken an overdose of medication and I'm laying on the, on the bed and perhaps I didn't actually die or, you know, I have a gun or something like that. To me, that is not dignified. Dignified is I consciously made the decision. I discussed it with my family members. I've discussed it with the doctors that are helping them administer it as well as my own doctors. And at some point I'm going to move forward. Um, and hopefully, you know, they're going to support me. And then, you know, hopefully my family members will be there when I do it. Um, and then, you know, in, from what I understand, it's a fairly peaceful process. You know, they administer uh, medication into your arm and within a half an hour, it stops your heart. And to me, that seems like a um, much more dignified way and easy way for me to go when that when I've reached that point in my quality of life. Find a number of questions now. Um, someone is asking, this is similar to having a signed DNR uh, or advanced directive stating that someone doesn't want to exist on event, right? So that's legal in some states in the US where you can give an advanced directive saying, if I'm um, in a certain state, like a vegetative state and reliant on a ventilator to breathe, um, right. I no longer want to live. And that's actually acceptable in a lot of places in the US, right? Um, right. But I guess the difference is that um, uh, the, well, the person, ha someone has to execute that wish, I guess. I mean, you've already signed the directive, but where do, where's the line drawn in the U.S.? It's like, that's acceptable, but you're, how is this different, I guess? Well, in the United States, they do not allow, um, they allow um, assisted suicide in, I believe it's nine different states for a myriad of diseases and medical conditions with the exception of Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and multiple sclerosis, because those are all cognitive, have cognitive disorder um, aspects to it. And so um, now, as far as the DNR is concerned, you're right. Um, you know, I do have a DNR in place and I do have um, a power of attorney in place and things like that. However, in discussions with my attorneys and with, um, my doctors and things like that, it's much more difficult to execute when it's somebody with a cognitive disorder than it is, you know, if you're on a vent, that's one thing. But if your brain is just deteriorating and your quality of life is going, they're less likely to just let you pass away and just stop things. Um, and so, um, you know, I've had people tell me, you know what, you need to get go get a very, very detailed uh, power, power of attorney and a very, very de detailed advanced directive, which I did do. And I just reviewed it with my lawyer and they said that it won't stand up. Um, because no, no doctor is going to do that in the, in the, in the United States. And so. No, sorry, go ahead. I, yeah. So, um, I, I think it's a little bit different. The, the big difference is when people are saying, um, power of attorney and DNRs and things like that, when it's for a cognitive disorder, it's different. Yeah. Um, and it's much more difficult to, um, for doctors to want to adhere to because they figure, you know what, if you're sitting there and you're in a wheelchair and you're smiling, even though you don't have a clue what's going on 
you know, to them, that might be enough quality of life that they're just going to let you keep going. Well, that's not quality of life to me, you know, slobbering all over myself in a, in a wheelchair and not knowing who my relatives are and, you know, um, not being able to toilet on my own and, you know, not being able to eat on my own and, and, you know, possibly be on honey liquids and things like that. That's not quality of life to me. Um, someone else is asking, do you have any re religious reservations about assisted suicide or euthanasia? Um, if so, how do you reconcile them? Um, I, I have cousins who have a lot of reservations about it and they don't think that what I'm doing is appropriate. Um, I don't have any reservations about it because I know I've been a caregiver for people who have this condition and I know what they go through and I am a good person. And I've done a lot of good things for people in this life. And I'm doing a lot for the Alzheimer's um, movement and trying to move the ball forward and doing a lot of fundraising and things like that. Um, so I think God's going to forgive me for this. And I don't think God is saying that he wants you to suffer. And I, I, I think God will, I think God's an all loving God. And I think he's going to have mercy on me if that's the decision that I decide to do. So um, Kelly, the, the, Plant, I mean, it seems like I, one thing that strikes me is, you know, obviously you are um, you are at a very early stage of Alzheimer's. Um, you know, yeah. you may be experiencing cognitive difficulties, but it's actually you're not at a stage where it's impacting your intellect clearly um, at all. Um, well, so, it someday, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's what everyone always says. Well, you should ask my husband or my wife or, you right. know. Or you see when I have to try to find my car, I can't find my car worth anything. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you're really putting a lot of thought into this topic now. Is is it because you feel like the clock is is ticking? Yes. Um, you know, and, and as I said, I've always been the type of person where I've done um, a lot of, you know, I used to be, do program and project management for a living. And so I'm used to planning everything out. And, you know, if I, um, I, um, I plan my work and I work my plan. And so just like this, I have a documented Alzheimer's um, plan, a business plan that I presented to my doctor um, on my first appointment with her after she gave me the diagnosis of here's all the things that I feel I have to do to prepare myself for the end game for, you know, when I hit that stage. And so we review that every time I meet with her every six months and where we're at with the business plan. So, for example, the other day we had a meeting and we were going through it and she's like, you know what, I wish everybody was like you. She said, because you know, you're talking about the difficult things and you're going ahead and you're putting these things in place, like planning your funeral, um, looking at nursing homes or assisted livings, looking at assisted suicide. And those are all very difficult things. And believe me, I have a lot of time where I, I spend my time crying at night and talking to my husband and he cries as well. Um, and but to me, if I can get this bad stuff out of the way, then from here on in up until the point where I start really having a lot of cognitive problems, then it's all gravy. But for me to have those things back in my back of my mind that eventually I need to do this, or more importantly, that I'm going to expect my husband to go and do that research for me, I don't want him to do it. I want to do it because it's my decision. It's my life. And I have very high expectations for how I want my life to be handled. And so I want to make the decisions. So I guess maybe it's a control thing, but um, it's just something that makes me feel more comfortable, even though I, be honest with you, I cry a lot. Uh, while I'm doing this. So the, I mean, I, I guess what I'm thinking too is a lot of people when they have a diagnosis, they they take on advocacy like you have obviously, um, but they live with hope in, in, a, in a sense um, by 
participating in clinical trials, really wanting to be part of the piece that's helping to solve the, the, the question behind this disease that leads to a cure. Um, what's your view on that? I mean, is there hope for you? Do you think possibly there could be a cure in your lifetime? I mean, are you, are you participating in research? Um, well, in terms of the research, I've applied for over 400 um, clinical trials. I've been rejected by all of them. 400? And, yes. And um, I finally talked to my doctor about it. I said, you know, I'm pre getting pretty frustrated. I keep applying to all these. And, and she's really into research. She participates in all these. And I said, you know, I don't know why you're not helping me. Why are you getting any, any? So finally, she was very frank with me. And she said, you know, to be honest with you, she said, um, the reason I haven't presented anything to you is she said, because last year I had uterine cancer. And so even though it was at the early stages and they caught it and they took it out with a hysterectomy, because I had cancer, it, it excludes you from any type of trial. And then also most trials require that you have an MRI as well. And I can't have an MRI because my pacemaker is not MRI compatible and my leads that are in my heart are not MRI compatible. So even if they could put the pacemaker in, because I get a new pacemaker in two years, even if they could put one in for me, that would be MRI compatible, my leads aren't. And there's no doctor, according to uh, my neurologist and my um, heart doctor, that would touch somebody with Alzheimer's and do surgery on their heart uh, to replace their leads. So um, trials are not something that I can participate in. And so the other thing that I'm doing is I'm um, very into um, taking care of my body. And so I'm eating the mind diet and um, I'm, I'm trying to eat and do everything that's or organic as possible. Um, I am monitoring everything I put on my body and in my body to make sure that it's not um, carcinogenic because I did have cancer. So I'm trying to be very careful of that. And so um, when I buy a product, I analyze it. I go on the Envi Environmental Working Group website and analyze the product to look at how many carcinogens are in that, as well as the Think Dirty app and evaluate that. And if it's carcinogenic and it's toxic, I don't buy it. Because if I'm doing that, those are all things that are gonna deteriorate my heart, potentially give me another form of cancer and impact my brain. So I've, I've totally overhauled my entire situation in terms of how I eat and what I put on my body. Um, the other thing that I'm doing is I work out extensively and my new job is to exercise. And I view that as I'm, um, is my job to exercise because I is the only thing I can do to keep myself healthy because if I can get the blood flowing through my heart and going up to my brain, then that's going to help is, you know, getting oxygen and, and blood to my brain. So um, I spend between two to four hours a day, almost every day working out. Um, so I'm, I, I guess I would say, um, you know, to be honest with you, when I ask my doctor if she thinks that um, I have a good prognosis, she'll tell me, um, no, I don't, that, you know, but she did tell me the other day that she said, I wish every patient I have were like you. She said, because you are in the fight for your life and you're maintaining such a positive attitude. And, you know, I just keep saying, you know what, F you Alzheimer's, I'm not doing this. You're not taking my life. And so um, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic, but you know, I'm also a realist and I know I saw what my uncle and my, um, or my great uncle and what my mom and people like that went through. So, um, I'm also a realist, but I'm, I'm doing the best I can. One day at a time. Um, uh, another viewer is asking the question of, you know, it seems inhumane to let people go through the end stage of Alzheimer's. 
isn't anyone working to change the laws. So is there a movement, um, I mean, with people like yourself who are just saying enough is enough, we should be in control of how we want to die, even with a diagnosis of a neurodegenerative disease. Is, is that, does that exist in the US? Um, no, most of the Alzheimer's organizations in the United States don't really want to touch this topic because you know, they're trying to get funding and things like that, and it's a touchy subject. And so they tend to stay away from it. However, um, I have been networking, and that's how I met you. I've been networking with different people throughout the United States. And uh, I hate to say this, but there's almost like a little underground network that we all communicate. And so there is a movement, and there are people who are working on it um, to go in front of, um, they want to start getting in front of some of the senators and congressmen to talk about this. Because, you know, if you had, if I had any other phase of cancer and things like that, I could possibly go ahead and do this in the United States. But because I have a cognitive disorder, I can't make that decision. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just seems sad that, you know, boy, if, if my cancer would have gotten me, I'd be in a different situation. And I don't think we should have to make that decision. And I want to talk a little bit about that because that's the difference between being patient and, um, you know, associations is like we are not we are here to exist to give people information, better information. You are one side, you know, of the equation. And it's an important one because I'm sure. Um, you know, there's people who would never opt into this and that's, that's great. We're by no means advocating for this, but what we do feel is that as journalists, this is an important viewpoint and it's one I'm sure, um, judging by the reactions we're getting, um, that's an, that, that is on a lot of people's minds. Um, and you know, it's, your story is, um, interesting in the fact that you are going to great lengths. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there's not going to be a lot of people like you who would do that. this. And also the other talk, someone else had pointed out earlier too, that this takes money in a way, you know, this, this is not a, this is not available to everyone because if right. you have to fly to Holland to plan your death um, right. at a time, you know, and, and give the specific, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming all of this is costing money. Yeah, in Switzerland, for example, $4,000 just to submit the application. And that doesn't even mean that they're going to accept you. Um, so it does cost money, um, but I think it's important. And I think, um, you know, I, I have decided that I need to reach out to as many Alzheimer's advocates like yourself to get my, my message out there and also to see if they can potentially help. Because right now, I haven't been able to establish a contact in Netherlands yet because of the COVID thing. Um, you know, their, their um, government offices aren't open. I don't know who to contact to be able to do this and stuff like that. So through networking, I'm hoping that eventually somebody will reach out. And the other really cool thing is I started a blog called um, um, uh, um, Living My Life with Alzheimer's Not Going Down Without a Fight. And hopefully you can send the, you know, put the URL on your on your page. Um, but the cool thing about that is enough people have seen it that I've had a couple of people who are Alzheimer's researchers reach out to me and say, hey, you know what? I saw your post and I know you said that you don't have any other options in terms of clinical trials, but we might have something here that we could do. Or have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? So I'm just hoping that if I keep out there that maybe somebody someday, somebody will be able to help me. Um, and so that's why I'm trying to be as vocal and visible as I can. And I think also, you know, I want to make sure everybody understands this. I am in no way am I suicidal. I absolutely love my life. I love my husband. I love my family. Um, but I do want the option to be able to choose when that time comes. And um, I think 
you know, the, um, unfortunately, I have a lot of friends who have Alzheimer's now because I've met a lot of people through the Alzheimer's Association and stuff like that. And a lot of them are at the point where, you know, they have a, they're in a lot of depression and they can't see the forest through the trees. They don't want to work out. They don't want to exercise. They don't see the value in it. Um, they've kind of given up. Well, I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep fighting this as long as I possibly can. Now, I know eventually the disease is going to take over and I won't be able to do, the, do those things. But until I get to that point, I'm, I'm going down kicking and screaming. Kelly Bone, thank you so much for sharing um, your viewpoint um, with us. I think it is um, one that deserves attention. Um, and, you know, no matter if you um, support something like this or are not uh, or are against it, um, you know, your viewpoint is one um, that has value um, just just to hear about your own case. So Kelly, thanks very much for taking the time uh, to share your story. We'll, we, we will um, link to the, your blog uh, in, in the message channel at Facebook. I'm sure there might be more questions coming in for you. Um, so please um, check with the Facebook uh, post and um, if people have more questions, you can answer them directly um, on, on our post. So okay, thanks very much Kelly um, for sharing your story. Okay, thank you very much. So, interviews, um, you can, we always post our interviews on beingpatient.com. Um, that was a discussion around death with dignity once you have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Um, just as a disclaimer, being patient isn't advocating for something like this. We're journalists, we're covering stories, and we feel it's an important topic um, to be out there um, just for inf information. Um, and you know, by no means are we advocating um, for um, people to. Um, uh, uh, you know, this is this is very much an individual's um, choice. It's one that's personal, but worthy um, in the new sense of um, what's what, how people feel, and um, again, patient perspective. Kelly Bone is one person diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and um, was gracious enough to share her story with us and we're grateful to her. So if you wanna hear more um, of these interviews, please go to beingpatient.com. We have Being Patient Perspectives, which is the first person's perspective from people diagnosed with dementia, as well as Brain Talks, which are our expert, our expert guests who share knowledge with us um, where you can ask questions directly. Thanks very much for uh, watching. If you wanna know about more of these talks, please sign up for our newsletters. You can do so on our website. See you next time.